0: Hello, guys. Welcome back to the shitcoin.com show. Uh, I'm Blake Moore here with Andreas Brecken. Happy to be here. And today's guest, uh, you probably know him. Um, We have a co-founder of Ethereum, uh, Vitalik Buterin. Welcome, Vitalik.
1: Thank you. It's good to be here.
0: Um, Yeah, I mean, it's an exciting time right now, right, for Ethereum. I know there's uh, some crazy... Crazy developments ongoing. Um, uh, where, where are things at right now in terms of uh, ETH 2.0?
1: Yeah, sure. So the biggest of uh, thing that came out over the last couple of days is uh, the first uh, test net that implements basically the same protocol that we want to uh, impl- uh, implement for the main network has uh, been released. Uh, so mm-hmm. this is this uh, prismatic Topaz network, though and theoretically we're hoping that we're going to get some other clients and not just the prismatic one we're hoping to get maybe a lighthouse and some other implementations on it soon. So, so far it's been running for about two days. I've been running a node. My uh, 32 uh, test net ether has gone up to about 32.01 test net ether as of uh, this morning. Okay. Uh, so yeah, uh, it's definitely a big milestone for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and uh, it's been the first. It's the first time that we have this uh, kind of running network that's running under and you know, basically the same parameters that we want to run under the main network. I mean, there's a couple of kind of very minor differences. Is you know there have there have to be, and it's you know the main network itself is running under slightly different parameters, but in general, like this is just the culmination of more than two years of. Uh, research and uh, development and a lot of hard work by the de- all the different client teams. And it seems like it's been running stably.
2: I still, I still remember where I was when the first Ethereum block was mined um, mm. back in the day. I mean, it was, um, if you remember that website, everybody was looking at where you could see all the different, um, uh, all the different clients that were connected and whether they were syncing or not. And it was a uh, kind of nerve wracking. Um, How was this one for you?
1: Yeah, and it's definitely a bit less nerve-wracking than the first time just because I've been through the, the whole thing before. But it's definitely kind of nervous with anticipation, but also just very excited to see all of this stuff finally go live.
2: Become an early adopter. We were talking a bit today about um, reminiscing a bit back to the, you know, the uh, Ethereum one white paper um, and also the yellow paper. And um, yeah, just all the excitement that came with that. But the actual, uh, the actual products uh, came much later. I mean, it feels like much of it came, came last year uh, with the explosion of DeFi and everything, or if you want to count the ICOs even before that. Um, what do you think um, is going to get uh, the people who are excited about Ethereum 1 launching? What do you think is going to get them excited uh, about Ethereum 2?
1: I think uh, I mean, one of the differences between uh, the ETH 1 launch and the ETH 2 launch is that the ETH 1 launch is this uh, kind of big bang all at once and you can start building kind of, pretty much everything immediately. Whereas for ETH 2, we're doing things in stages. You know, first it's the proof of stake launching, and then sharding is launching, and then the ETH 1 and ETH 2 chains will get integrated. And I published that uh, kind of roadmap uh, documents on uh, the diagram on Twitter about I think it was a month ago. So there's you know after ETH 2, there's still all of this uh, kind of ETH 2.0, right? So we have ETH onex we have ETH 2, and then ETH 2.0 is uh, already being planned. So it's more of this uh, kind of phased thing where basically the network just uh, keeps getting better and better over time. Uh, so I think it turns out that uh, even before we get uh, kind of full scalability uh, uh, for just every Ethereum application and uh, the ability to do of everything that we've been able to do so far, but at a m- much higher scale, uh, we'll get scalability for some very specific applications. Uh, so rollups, for example, right? Rollups have been this uh, kind of big layer two scalability buzzword in Ethereum land where in- instead of having everything off chain, you have the computation off chain, but you, but you have something like 10 to 20 bytes of data on chain for every transaction. And you use, you know, fraud proofs or snarks or some of this other tech to uh, solve the computation part. So the um, scalability for rollups uh, is actually going to come before scalability for general purpose computation, right? And rollups already, you know, you have things like looping running, you have some of these optimistic things running that can theoretically do more than 1,000 or even more than 2,000 transactions per second even now if like literally everyone were to switch to them. But mm-hmm. multiplied by sharding, it's a potentially even larger. So I expect we'll see a, a lot of experimentation with roll-up type things uh, com- coming fairly early. Um, I, ex- I also expect, um, you know, the proof of stake side to have some uh, benefits fairly quickly. So like one of the examples of that is that the proof of work chain, at least the way that it's been done in Ethereum has been kind of much less light client friendly than we wanted it to be. And so, you know, you have everyone using Inf- Infura, you have all the mobile wallets talking to a server and all of those things, whereas the uh, proof of stake chain is, uh, intended to be in kind of much more like client friendly right from the beginning. So that's and then when ETH1 and ETH2 get connected to each other, then uh, proof of stake on ETH2 will get you this uh, kind of level of like client security on ETH1. So you basically get kind of all of these little features and all of these little benefits that can benefit you know, different parts of the Ethereum ecosystem and you will expect to just see them kind of solely turn on one after the other.
2: Do you um. If it's much easier to run a light client, do you, um, do you expect people to make more apps, um, you know, that run in the web browser where uh, the user doesn't actually have a full node, but all the information it needs about the blockchain it receives mm-hmm. any communication channel in the browser like WebRTC or anything like that? Mm-hmm.
1: Right. So MetaMask exists already, right? And MetaMask is this kind of browser extension that is this uh, kind of, what we, what we sometimes call a zero client. It's basically, like you hold your private keys, but all the blockchain information is coming from a server. And that's been a huge boost to just usability of Ethereum applications. And I'm definitely hoping that things like MetaMask will be able to be a proper light clients instead of just um, hooking up to Infura over the next year or so.
2: And um, what are you, uh, you gonna do with your miners? Uh, like um, maybe as a divider in a bookshelf, or what are you thinking?
1: Yeah, it's a, a, a good question. Um,
2: <laughs> there's a lot of
1: in, there's a lot of use cases for a, a compute, a kind of computing power for very structured computation. You know, like I mean, first of all, I know a lot of gaming communities have uh, hated us for the last couple of years just because we're oh, yeah. in gaming. But maybe if there's less miners, then you know, the gamers will be happy again, and we'll see a lot of uh, cheap hardware coming in. Um, another option uh, kind of closer to the crypto space, and like this is definitely not going to get get 100% of the miners. Like, you might get a few percent at most, but uh, zero-knowledge proofs. Uh, so, you know, there's been this huge uh, kind of tech, quiet technology revolution happening with... Uh, zero-knowledge proofs being much more useful for everything, and you have, like, Plonk, and Starks, and Snarks, and uh, Lookup, and all of these uh, kind of alphabet soup inventions, and they're very powerful, right, because, uh, first of all, they give you a lot of privacy, but second, they uh, give you a lot of scalability, because instead of verifying a really big thing, you just have to verify a really small proof and you can use them to verify validity of things. You could potentially use them to replace uh, Merkle trees, cut the Merkle branches and witnesses down from hundreds of kilobytes to like a couple of kilobytes and all of these nice things. But the proofs often take a lot of time to generate, right? And so I think, yeah, like, even like if you look at Zcash, right? If you I was Zcash. about to say
2: Zcash. Like, uh, I yeah. think I've, I've, made it, uh, I've made it almost a ritual that uh, I think like every year since Zcash launched, I just say on Twitter, like, um, Zuko, when can, I, uh, when can I make transactions for my phone? When's that happening? I'll take delegated, I'll take anything. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so and I actually did get a chance to see one of the white clients that uh, the, the mobile phone clients that uh, people in the Zcash uh, community have been working on. And I managed to sign a transaction from, from a phone and send it. And even in Ethereum, right, like you have tornado.cache, which is basically using kind of Zcash style zero knowledge proof technology for an Ethereum mixer. Mm -hmm. And tornado cache itself is all written in JavaScript. It's a basically static web page, right? And I actually tried it from inside of status, and status of this kind of mobile phone Ethereum client plus browser plus chat application. And it turns out I was able to send a. an anonymized transaction from insider status on my phone. So it does take like maybe 10 to 20 seconds to prove instead of like two to three on your computer, but it's, it's totally possible. And, and I'm definitely expecting it'll keep getting better.
0: If you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to sign up to our newsletter at shitcoin.com slash newsletter. And I wanted to ask you as well, so there's been this explosion of financial applications, right, on, on Ethereum. Mm-hmm. Um, but what do you think are the most interesting applications that are are coming out or in the pipeline um, in other sectors?
1: Yeah, very good question. Uh, So, I mean, first of all, ENS continues to be important and just decentralized domain names and kind of decentralized usernames in general. So uh, Status uses ENS for its uh, kind of usernames because it's trying to do a very good UX decentralized messaging without needing kind of any kind of server for anything so if the company disappears tomorrow it'll keep on running Mm -hmm. um and there is definitely a lot of nice use cases for non-financial tokens whether it's a kind of proof of participation at different events whether it's tickets for different things kind of virtual game items and all of these things um and in there's a lot of benefits that you can get from kind of combining together the financial aspects and uh, the non-financial aspects of uh, a lot of these applications and kind of being able to just, you know, just buy um, NFTs of uh, and just in a single transaction on chain and all of these uh, things um, in the kind of financial, but not just token sphere uh, auctions, I think are interesting. Um, and I think these de- different kinds of decentralized organizations are interesting. I and mean, I know there was kind of the DAO in back in 2016, and there's a lot of uh, kind of different examples that, of uh, similar and not so similar things that have popping up more recently that try to do things more carefully. And in, in general, coming up with uh, kind of better ways to just build and run or, uh, and make kind of organizations that, you know, properly take advantage of uh, just the ability of many different people to participate that the um, that the internet gives us that wasn't available before is some is definitely a big interest of mine, and and we've been seeing a lot of different people trying to do things. Some of them mm-hmm. end up just mm-hmm. not being particularly better than anything that came before. Some of them are breaking, and some of them I think are actually genuinely interesting. And like the Gitcoin grant stuff I think has been interesting and some of these uh, kind of Ethereum ecosystem, DAOs like Moloch Down, marketing DAO and a couple of others. And it's, they're very interesting experiments and it's been interesting to kind of see them run as a complements to thing, things like the Ethereum Foundation and some of the other big players in the
2: space. Do you, uh, um, so I remember back um, when you released uh, uh, the white paper for Ethereum One, and uh, mm. also the technical paper. I remember because I, I printed out all of it and all the references, and um, I think I read it on the beach. My, uh, <laughs> this is probably why my friends think I'm crazy. Um, but uh, the, uh, the stuff that crossed my mind when I was reading that was, and especially a lot of the influence from Nick Savo's work was uh, the ability to make machine to machine payments like, um, I was thinking Mm -hmm. stuff like, uh, you know, you're on a highway, there's a lot of traffic. If the cars can pay each other and they can communicate the preference, like Mm -hmm. I have to arrive very soon or Mm -hmm. I can arrive pretty much anywhere, uh, you can solve traffic congestion. And that was the first one I thought of. There's unlimited amounts of these machine to machine payments. Uh, Do you think that's gonna get any traction anytime soon?
1: Yeah, I definitely think kind of those kinds of applications are very cool. And I think you uh, I mean, the biggest challenge in kind of deploying them quickly is just that it's not a pure software problem because you have to actually and kind of talk to the people that are building the machines and get them to support all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's not the sort of thing that uh, kind of a couple of hackers can just uh, put together in four months and get people to start immediately using it. But in the longer term, I think that kind of stuff is definitely extremely promising. And I think there's a lot of things that we could do with payments that we have just not been able to practically do before, just because existing payment systems don't necessarily make it very easy to receive money in many cases.
2: And uh, I guess once you start um, making combinations of financial products and prediction markets, you can get some really wacky DAOs. I mean, Mm you could sort of run an investment fund that uh uses the prediction market to uh to gather data or anything like that do you have you been using prediction markets much or what do you think
1: yeah and i definitely kind of pop into things like auger and some of the alternatives every once in a while and see how they're doing um it's they're definitely getting better and better and i think uh, And one of the challenges is just that kind of the UX has to be good and you have to get to the point where you have enough of liquidity so that if you buy and sell, you're not taking a 10 to 20% hit or whatever. Um, And I I definitely think things are kind of slowly improving. and, And I even think that like some of the work that's happening in decentralized exchanges with the like Uniswap and then, and I forgot the name, but then yougnosis one. I mean, all of that's definitely going to kind of roll over into these decentralized prediction markets and uh, improve things there. And I, I've I've been a fan of, uh, of of those kinds of things for a while. I mean, decentralized like prediction markets and then kind of deposits and insurance and all of these adjacent things and like, there's a lot of potential there.
2: Yeah, that's, um, I mean, it's, uh, I guess I'm a little influenced by listening to Paul Stort so much about this, but um, the mm. possibilities of a prediction market is even, uh, even wider than I thought. Once you start doing, um, uh, once you start crossing them, so you can actually, mm-hmm. um, you can actually get people's voice uh, on what is the best decision.
0: Shift <laughs> with so uh, we, I saw you've been uh, tweeting a little bit about uh, marketing and its place in, in crypto versus, uh, not versus, but complementing tech. How, how are you going to pull in people in the wider crypto community um, into ETH 2.0 that maybe haven't been sold to date with uh, ETH
1: 2.0? Sure. And I think, first of all, it's important to remember that up until very recently, ETH 2.0 was basically kind of an idea and a dream as far as most people could tell. You know, there's a lot of research work happening. There is a lot of technical work ha- happening. But kind of I respect that, you know, if you're someone watching from kind of far away, it's uh, harder to distinguish those kinds of things from vaporware. But and you know, I think now that, you know, you have test networks and you can you know, join on and you can try staking, and that kind of brings it closer to reality for people. But also, I think it'll get much closer to reality for people when you actually have kind of any 2.0 live network running where... You know, you can at least do things like put, put data uh, onto the network and have kind of some level of sharding, so you can get scalability for applications that people benefit from. And, and I think, uh, you know, most people at the end of the day are not going to be attracted until there is something that they can concretely use. And I think that's fine. And and I think it's actually better for us to not do too much marketing until uh, the, you know, the use, the usability, and the the actual presence of uh, running running technology and running networks to to back up the marketing isn't there. So the, and that is something that we've been you know, f- deliberately trying to uh, be careful about. But you know, when you can uh, use ETH two together with uh, rollups and some of these other techniques to I've actually move thousands of payments around and um, per second on chain and have all of these uh, and highly scalable and other kinds of of uh, applications. Then that's definitely something that we need to uh, kind of uh, talk about and uh, kind of bring to people in a way that that people can actually use.
2: Will existing Ethereum 1 contracts, will they work exactly the same once they, uh, you know, once to become relocated to the Ethereum 1 shard in mm-hmm. Ethereum 2?
1: Yes, uh, very uh, good question there. Uh, so the The roadmap for kind of ETH two and the ETH one ETH two migration has definitely, kind of, slowly changed over the last two years because you know we've heard developers' concerns and developers have been wanting smoother transitions, and so the transition that we've been proposing has become kind uh, of smoother and smoother over time. So our current plan to, for the transition uh, step, going from ETH one to ETH two and kind of merging the two chains and retiring the. Proof of Work side is basically that we kind of cut and paste the Ethereum one state root, and we take it out of Eth one, we put it into Eth two, and then from then on, uh, the Eth two chain kind of continues, and in that shard, it basically executes the exact same rules that e- uh, that the Eth one chain did. Right, so mm-hmm. the same rules for what transactions are valid, the same rules for how code gets executed, for what effects transactions have. So applications would still work in the same way that they did before. The only difference is that those rules would be implemented by an ETH2 code instead of being implemented by ETH1 code. Now, there is a bit of dis- of a disruption that ETH, the developers will experience. Uh, so one bit is that and if during the transition itself, there might be like a period of maybe an hour or two hours during which the chain is basically paused. And the second thing is that gas costs for some opcodes might end up going up quite a bit. Uh, basically, like reading the ch- reading the state is currently kind of not I- expensive enough, basically, because mm-hmm. ETH2 operates in this kind of stateless model where you need uh, to kind of merkle prove everything. And so ETH1 currently isn't really designed around that. And there's a lot of things that are kind of cheap because they're cheap in an ETH1 context. But in a context, we need to get proofs for everything. They're really not cheap. And so there's some operations that we get, more expensive than they are today, but generally that shouldn't affect kind of regular applications that much.
2: And uh, how, uh, how expensive are um, operations that involve uh, cross-shard communications going to be?
1: Yes, so in terms of gas cost, uh, not more expensive by much. Uh, in terms of uh, latency, basically you will have to wait one slot for something that starts on one shard to finish on another shard, right? Basically because what you would have to do is you would have to you know, perform an operation on one shard, then the operation on that one shard creates this Merkle branch, it creates this receipt, then the receipt gets copied over into a second shard and then you have to kind of include it in the second shard and that can only be done in the next slot. So there's, there is that delay, but in terms of uh, and of actual gas cost, um, it's not much more expensive than doing things within one chart.
0: I, I can see that getting involved on the uh, ETH 2 Testnet is possible now uh, via Prylabs.net uh, forward slash participate. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, if you're if you're interested in getting involved in that as a developer, I suggest you head on over there and yeah, start testing it out. And remember to follow Vitalik. Uh, you probably already are. If you're in this space on Twitter um, at Vitalik Buterin, thank you so much again, Vitalik. It's been great. Really yeah, appreciate thank your you, time. Vitalik.